Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Welcome back to the Muslim Matters Podcast, where we discuss everything under the sun that affects Muslims, such as faith, local and global politics, social media, sex education, civil rights, and family matters, all coming from a traditional Orthodox perspective. Subscribe to our podcast and follow us online on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram on our handle, Muslim Matters. And check out our site daily at muslimmatters.org. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh, and welcome to the Muslim Matters Podcast. I am your host, Zainab Bintinas, and today's guest is Muslim Matters' own editor-in-chief, Hena Zuberi, who also wears many other hats as a wife, mother, journalist, and human rights activist. Hena Zuberi is editor-in-chief of MuslimMatters.org and the director of advocacy for a U.S.-based human rights organization, which works on genocide prevention and minority rights focused on the Ummah. Welcome to the podcast, Hena. I've been having, meaning to have you for so long. And finally, you're here. <laughs> Thank you for having me. And mashallah, uh, it's amazing how much this podcast has grown and um, the various topics you touch on. Alhamdulillah. So let's just jump into it. Human rights is such a big issue. And now more than ever, Muslims are actually paying attention to the topic of human rights in a very personal way, specifically with the genocide in Gaza right now. But I want to take a broader look at human rights and the ummah, the way that Muslims look or don't look at human rights advocacy and the importance of it. So my first question is going to be, what do Muslims miss about the importance of human rights and how it relates to us as an ummah? And let's even just get this, um, if we look at this from a Sharia perspective, this is a part of our deen. This is, and this is why personally I do this work because I really absolutely believe in the Quran. Allah Subhanahu wa Taala has told us to establish Christ on earth, and this is a, a aspect of of the work that is often missed. People don't even know the meaning of Christ and what is. What does it mean in the Quran? And I've, I hear about this from many people. What is this principle? And basically, it's the establishment of justice, equity on earth. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has given us an order to establish this on earth. It's a Quranic term and principle. And it's about giving each human being their due share. Right. Whether it and from this basic principle, we form a moral worldview. Right. Which is so it's not it's beyond our private virtues our uh, how you, we behave with another human being to more of a collective praxis on how we look at the world. And it's not just a sometimes people like talk about it as like this abstract ideal, but it's very specific, concrete, and it's a goal that, that the, it's a prophetic goal that the Prophet ﷺ, right? We saw him do this and it should be a goal for us, all of us to have as a social and economic goal for marginalized and disempowered people of any community. And if we look at beyond how Sharia 
gives asks makes it in, the the importance of the right to life and dignity this is something the sanctity of life and human dignity is a part of our faith and the preservation of life is considered such a fundamental maqasid of sharia right and 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 it aligns very like when i read the, the universal charter of human rights or the genocide conventions or i really honestly believe many of these these Uh, principles were taken from sharia from the quran so we have a life a right to life to personal dignity to the protection of property and wealth this is also the sharia law guarantees the right to own and protect property it includes the prohibition of theft and fair trade transactions and these are global human rights norms that we tend to look at it just from the secular perspective but when you look at it from the islamic perspective this is oh there's so many even fiqh rulings on this right uh, in the same way we look at how from human rights from a sharia perspective would be family rights protecting marriage and inheritance and the welfare of children and the freedom of religion is such a big one and this is recognized globally as a fundamental human rights but it's also recognized in 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 the sharia as well the i'm missing some i'm missing yeah the right to justice and fair trial that's like a, another big one right that and then when we look at the world today and we see it hitting so close and and see the basic right to life being denied to people right in front of our eyes and it's being broadcasted on our iPhones and we're watching it like it's supposed it's it, it hits in a way that i feel like just reading a books on it or reading articles on it has never hit people so i think a lot of what we are seeing and people understanding why it's this is something that we need to stand for is I, I'm feeling like our community is finally getting it, but it's awful that it took having a genocide being broadcast for us to actually understand that. Absolutely, and I'm glad you brought up the angle of how this is in such an important part of our deen because I feel like for a very long time this whole concept of human rights has been very secularized. and Muslims felt like this is not our business hands off that's like the united nations kind of problem to deal with but as you said now finally after so long muslims are waking up to the realization that we actually have a very important role to play in the establishment of human rights and how that is tied to the very concept of justice in islam So along those lines what are examples of causes that we should be aware of of course everybody is very aware of what's happening in Palestine uh, as we should be and anyone who isn't is living under a rock or there's something wrong with them but besides the genocide in Gaza and the overall illegal occupation and oppression of the people of Palestine what are other causes that we should know about i know a few people will know of passing information about the Rohingya Muslims and the Uyghur Muslims in China who are being also genocided. There's a few of us who have read headlines and some details about what's going on in Sudan. But what are other examples of like I said human rights causes that we as Muslims should very much be aware of? So, yes, that is subhanallah. We often overlook so many of people from our ummah the ummah is suffering but the ummah is also 
standing for freedom, for justice, for la ilaha illallah. And we're seeing this across the world. The largest refugee camps in the world filled with Muslims. Whether it is in Bangladesh, at the, in Cox's Bazar, where we have over a million Rohingya settled in a country that is doesn't know what to do with them, a country that's very economically at a point where they can't, they themselves can't handle their own local population, much less a population that is not theirs. Then we have the largest concentration camps, the modern day history, which is the Euler population occupied, China has occupied East Turkestan, and we have the largest concentration camps in the world over there. And um, Islam is being at first, we, when people were studying the Uyghur genocide, they realized they used to think that this was just a cultural genocide. And, but this is very much a physical genocide. A lineage is being destroyed. In, and maybe one day we can have a specific go on genocide. People need to understand because I feel like people throw around the world genocide, word genocide a lot. And as somebody who has been doing genocide research for the past almost a decade and working with survivors and talking talking about it, testifying about it, writing about it. It's very important for us to also understand the terminology, what genocide means, what crime, war crime means, what criminal crimes against humanity means in the secular stage, right? And so that's is super important for us to understand. And so then, but more than that, how many people have heard about what happened in the Central African Republic? Their uh, Islam uh, arrived in Central African Republic in the 17th century, and um, thousands of Muslims, Central African Republic, for Chad, because they did not feel in 2014, because they did not feel safe in um, the country. Um, majority of the masajid were burnt down. Uh, people, the, the Muslims in, in Central African Republic have suffered such a great like such great suffering but we don't even talk about it we don't even know we didn't we don't even know that that muslims uh who are sunnis of the maliki fiqh live in in central african republic so that's definitely many of us have now heard about the congo and what is happening there or just in sudan in fact i have a recording i'll share with all of you about what is happening in the sudan where two military forces are fighting over the country and essentially the lives of the civilian population has been just ravaged this is a beautiful country deep understanding of the faith like uh, subhanallah i urge everybody once uh, it's safe enough to go visit sudan to see the magnificent nile i actually grew up in the sudan my father was posted there and i have such memories and just I remember at Isna, I was passing a table. There was a small little table, and someone was showing what was happening in in the Sudan, and just made me just I was just like bawling. And my sister sent me a video of our street that where our house used to be, and majority of the homes on the on that street had been bombed. And this wasn't a foreign like invaders or outsiders occupiers who were doing this. This was our own people are doing to one one group of Sudanese are doing it to another group of Sudanese because of a power struggle. And similarly in 
in Ethiopia, in Tigray, like how many, we don't talk about the suffering enough. There's so such a great calamity that befell Tigray. And because it's so complex in the manner of like how Ethiopians themselves look at this crisis, many of us just say, oh, astaghfirullah, oh, I'm so sorry. And then just we just don't even have a discussion about it. Those are like just just tip of the iceberg when we talk about currently what is happening in the Ummah and not to forget Kashmir and what Muslims in India are going through under this Hindutva regime led by Prime Minister Modi. And every day we see India has the largest population of Muslims in the entire world. It's bigger than Indonesia. The population, if you took the Muslims of India and made them into a separate country, just the ones that are in there right now, their population would be larger than the population of Indonesia. Wow. You mentioned situations and places such as Ethiopia, Sudan, and elsewhere where it's our own people doing this to one another, right? And I know a lot of people, a lot of Muslims will just not understand what's going on. Obviously, we are not from those places. We don't have relationships with those places. We don't know the history and background of those places. And it's very disconcerting for Muslims to come to terms with the very concept of Muslims enacting such horrific violence upon other Muslims. Do you have a few words to say uh, along those lines on how Muslims can, can process this, why we should care, what it is that we should keep in mind while we are thinking about these examples of human rights causes that we should very much care about? We, uh, especially those of us who live in the West, have a big responsibility. And I say this because we live in relative freedom many of we many of our nations where we came from those of us who are in us to this land or were not brought here as slaves we most of us come from colonized countries that lived under boots to our necks our parents can probably give testimony our grandparents definitely did i know my family is a child we went through the partition and the and the lives that were lost during that time. When we come and live in this, these countries, whether it's Canada or the U.S. or Australia or other countries where we relatively seem to have some aspects of, we, alhamdulillah, we still can pray on the street. We can pray in our masajid. Um, I can pick up the phone and call my elected official and demand whether he listens to me or doesn't, at least I can make that demand. Any of the countries that we come from, whether that's Egypt or Pakistan or Saudi Arabia or Yemen or Nigeria, many of those countries, the citizens, the civilians do not have those sort of ways to engage with their governments. You can get arrested for a tweet. You can get sent to jail for protesting. There's some that are okay. For example, in Pakistan, I, I could take a march out from women's rights, but could I do that for the Uyghur cause? No, I can't because the influence of China. So we living over here, I feel, need to understand why the rest of the ummah is looking towards us. And I'll, we, I'll say this again. If there's also, like, we have had these debates in the past, like living in this land and Dar al-Harb and all of that. You can go down that rabbit hole, right? 
if you are living in this country and if dawah is not your goal and you're not going to use the rights that you have in this country for the upliftment of the ummah that you really need to check yourself and see why are you here i'll tell you a story i went a couple of years ago i was invited to speak in turkey and it was a big conference and there were representatives from every muslim country there and i was representing american muslims and it was very interesting and i was like the only woman delegate there were 500 other <laughs> male delegates it was very interesting so i didn't realize that because there were lots of women there they were mm-hmm. participating but when we got up on stage and i was looking around and there's this really i can share that picture with you one day the the next day they published the picture on the front page of the newspaper and there's 500 brothers and me <laughs> it was very wow. very funny I'm glad it was you up there. Yeah. So my presentation was on American Muslims and what we have been able to accomplish uh, with by doing the work whether it's human rights work, civil rights work. Subhanallah the response was so great like they and I realized that and that's why it really hit me. It hit me that we carry such a big responsibility. And this these nations are looking towards us because many of our countries are the oppressors in those nations or we're supplying weapons to those to the aggressors or we're bolstering dictatorships in those countries so as citizens tax paying citizens we have responsibilities that we can't just say oh i'm too busy because i work and i'm a doctor and i'm a nurse or I'm a teacher and I we just do our little dawat cultures on weekends and we just we're just shopping and we're going to the masjid and we're doing our qiyams and we're done. I don't believe we're done. I do believe every one of us has responsibility and we can't just be like not for me. I I really whether and you choose the manner that you want to advocate whether it could be like Zainab is doing by talking about it on a podcast it could be by writing about it not everybody needs to be on the streets protesting some others could be in running for boards running for commissions there's so many ways to get involved and to bec- and i really feel like marginalized communities like ours because we're marginalized we tend to self marginalize too and to retreat into our little safe spaces exactly retreat into our safe spaces not want to put ourselves out there not want to not even know how the system works if i i hear this so much from young people because they'll say oh my parents are scared they don't want us to speak and these young people don't have the baggage that their parents do right they they are born and raised in this country they understand a little bit about how the it works and they don't they're not scared but we try to shut them down as well and I, I, honestly if we want to continue living in the west and this is our home and we believe that this is our home and we want our children to thrive here we better get involved we better be worried about civil rights we better be worried about our human rights because as we this idea people tend to think human rights or like the flags come out and all of that it's so much more religious freedom is a human right like i said and social rights those the right to work the right to education the right to social welfare 
all of these are essential rights, right? Regardless of our race, our gender, our social status, there there's some intrinsic dignity that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has gifted us with. Every human being that walks on this earth is gifted with that. And for us not to want to work to protect it, that's messed up to me, right? Yeah, I, I, I really think we've done a number on ourselves by making it something that other people do or this NGO does or the five leaders in our activists in our community do. No, I think this is a responsibility of every Muslim who lives and is able to do it. I'm not going to blame the Yemenis on the streets, right, who've been bombarding and they still come out on the streets and say, I don't care, bomb us, we're still out here. Or the Uyghur who can't even throw a rock because they're going to be taken into concentration camp. Mm -hmm. What excuse do you have? So I really like that you're framing it as an individual responsibility, especially for Muslims in the West, because we have these freedoms that so many others don't have. Now, I would ask you, given that we do have so many freedoms, but at the same time, we're also living essentially in surveillance states as well, right? You and I both know very personally what it means to have security agencies monitoring you or government agencies monitoring you, uh, foreign governments even. So... For people who are very fearful that if they try to get involved with activism, especially with human rights, they're going to suffer, as we see in the case of those who are protesting for Palestine and advocating for Palestine, losing their jobs, disciplinary action, even having their financial assets seized. How would you say somebody should process these fears and not allow them to paralyze while being responsible because we do have families we do have parents we have kids we've got grandkids we've got extended families who can and will be impacted if we choose to take on certain roles uh, or certain types of advocacy and activism what's the balance there good question i get i hear that a lot i do and i understand and i'm not denying anybody's experiences, anybody's fears as well. Your fears are valid. Our communities have been under surveillance. But what is, I feel like it's the rent that you pay to live in this country. Okay, so let me explain that, what I mean by that. The fear that comes from it, like we, we hear khutbahs and we hear lectures about, oh, just fear Allah, right? And we're not supposed to fear anybody else. And Allah is in control. We know that too. We know Allah is in control. We know that we have been, like I said, we have a responsibility to to speak up, right? The okay, I'm going to take this a little bit back, and because now so many things are coming. Just yesterday, a young woman she had someone else read, read her statement because her parents were scared. They're from Palestine. They have a uh, one of the blue cards, uh, and that could be revoked at any time. If anybody knows the card system. And they didn't want her to testify at the Human Rights Commission last night that we were at. So what she did is she still wrote her testimony and she gave it to a friend to read. And that just to me, like put it out, like she did not stop herself. She respected her parents' wishes, but she did not let that stop her herself from finding a safer venue to do the work. And that is, I feel like if we could all get to a point where we realize that this is our responsibility, but we can take safeguards, we can learn how not to get doxxed, we can 
if you're doing social media activism, you can how to protect yourself, you can learn your civil rights, you can make sure you know that you don't speak to the FBI without a lawyer. Like those are all things that you can learn before you start doing the work or even while you're doing the work, right? Don't say dumb things that will get you into trouble and get you fired from your job. Nobody needs that. That's not productive. But there are ways, like, for example, we're doing these phone banks across the country in the United States, calling our senators and elected offices, asking for ceasefire. And people have been training people. Alhamdulillah, so far, I've trained almost 5,000 people since October. And that's the most frequently asked question that I get, like, And as far as I know, no one in the history of the United States has been jailed or targeted because they called up their elected officials and asked them to do something that was legal. So a lot of these are little fears that we make up for ourselves. And then, and the regular folks, you right? Like people, like doing things like that is not going to cost you your jobs. Now, some people have been targeted, definitely. A friend of mine's young sister, she had a Palestinian flag on her. And in her email, she had from the river to the sea listed on her as her signature. And she has been, since October, she has been put on uh, leave and she cannot go and teach her beloved students since then. So yes, it is, there is definitely a risks associated, but compared to what we are seeing, and we want this genocide to stop. We want our brothers and sisters in the Ummah to have the same sort of opportunities that we have, the same sort of social equity that we have, the same sort of um, freedoms we have, but we don't want, that's like a personal thing that you have to really look deep into yourself. What am I willing to give up for that? What am I willing to give up? You know, we imagine that if we were during the time of the Sahaba, and the Prophet ﷺ was in front of us and he was calling us out and saying, okay, you're going to go on this mission and you're going to go on that mission. We would have been the first ones in the line. But if our, if our thinking had been the same as our thinking is right now, would we have been on, at the front of the line? Yeah, that's a good point. There's always that romanticism that we have when we talk about the seerah, but a lot more fear when it comes to trying to, or thinking about applying it in our daily lives. And I really, one of, some of the things would be to, if you are scared, start off with things that are little. If you, it, that means sending an email to your elected official or things that, you know, that are your rights as a citizen or a permanent resident or a, even folks who are, don't have, doc, are undocumented, have still have rights in our countries, right? So that's something to start off with doing something that you believe it won't, will not be, is less scary. And hopefully you can build up other things. Maybe adopt a prisoner. Maybe there's a political prisoner, whether it's Afia Siddiqui or whether it's in, in, in Indian jails, there are prisoners rotting, journalists who are rotting just for writing about what's happening in India. There there are oil or prisoners, right? Adopt a cause like that and write, keep asking your elected officials to adopt one of these political prisoners and try to set them free. And that's a small little goal that there's so many causes. Just choose a cause and start working on it from like ground, on from the ground up. Maybe handing flyers after Juma Khutbah, that is not going to get you in jail. People aren't going to come and surveil you for that. Things like that is what I just feel like 
we make it into it, like it's going it has to be some really big like i have to get a degree in human rights law before i can become a, a an advocate for somebody no you can start with a small maybe it's a letter to the editor that you write to your local newspaper and you point out that uh, maybe you have family that has been impacted uh, across the world because of these uh, decisions that our government makes maybe you can write that and send that as a letter all these little things that we do make up like this piece of the puzzle and can get you involved in the struggle i like that you mentioned that there's very small actionable things and there are a lot of action items lists that have been going around especially for palestine uh, recently but i know that there are similar action item lists for for many different causes and that does make it a lot more digestible because i know that another part of what holds people back or is that they think well it's, it's just too much work it's pointless for us to do anything because what's it going to do anyways right like these are big problems we have nothing to do with them like the rohingya issue right that's all the way over there we don't have anything to do with it what can we do you know what's a letter to the editor going to do anyway um so how would you respond to that just a little bit further i feel like that's a, such a defeatist attitude i really do the islamic call is one of struggle right we say that right we say that struggling in the path of allah is such high value and the quran calls for fighting against social injustice you know discrimination class discrimination slavery so many things right and allah alerts us over and over again that collectively caring for the ummah is our responsibility and reforming the community is a priority these are like these are basics and i believe they should be taught in sunday school which we we don't teach that and subhanallah and yeah, we just stick to wudu yeah. salah and that's it And you're lucky if you even get to cover that much. Yeah, and these are fundamentals of our faith. This is not something that I'm making up or some activist on the street made up. This is pick up the Quran and read this. And these verses they came to correct the conditions that allowed the existence of those who boast of like people squandering like what vast wealth what does that mean? Yeah, 14 billion dollars to Israel to bombard our brothers and sisters sounds like squandering vast wealth why do we always think of it as oh people giving big parties or having big weddings why do we limit our understanding of the quran so much um yeah. there's so the homeless on our streets the the fast people kids in the foster care system all of these security in our local communities exactly all of these are our responsibility right and once you have So you look in your own backyard and there's so many causes that you can be working on in your own backyard and then you look at a people like the Rohingya these this subhanallah this people of Allah they have been kept away from education decades there isn't at least there wasn't up till 12 years ago but now mashallah in the past couple of years there have been young rohingyas who have been given education who who have been living in free countries where they do have freedom uh, to go to school uh, because they weren't allowed to go to school even madrasas most rohingya that you'll meet are they they might they were only allowed undercover madrasas to go into and so they'll be very strict about their quran and 
because it was such a luxury for them even to learn how to read the Quran. And this is, I tell the students this all the time, like, subhanAllah, you're, you don't realize that you, the luxury of fasting, the Uyghurs, they don't, they aren't allowed to fast. These are all things that we take for granted because we live in a place where we are able to do these things. Mm-hmm. They're just, even if you can connect to that on that level, because what happens a lot of times, our community understands humanitarian aid. Mashallah, we are very giving. The past, just you could see what happened after Turkey had that gigantic earthquake. Billions of dollars sent by American and Canadian Muslims. We have sent five, American Muslims have sent five billion dollars to Syria for the Syrian cause. Mashallah. So it's not like we don't have money. And it's not like we don't know how to use it. We know how to spend. We're not spendthrifts. But we don't understand that a lot of this could be prevented. We don't know how to invest in preventative causes, right? Give our money to building our own media so we can defend ourselves. Have place spaces where we can publish whatever we want and not be edited. We don't spend on on advocacy because we don't understand it. We don't spend on human rights education because we don't understand it. We do understand if I give $10, this will buy a blanket and this poor Rohingya person living in this, it's because it makes you feel good too, right? Right. But how about you actually spend some money and educate that Rohingya, the young Rohingya refugee who has arrived here and is living in Chicago and can't afford it How about you support them so they can, like, oh God, I could talk about this for hours. There's so much (laughs) we can talk about. There's so many ways you can. And if nothing else, know that these are the most persecuted people in the world. Allah has not put you through that persecution in that manner. And so you make the dua that, thank Allah, you didn't test me like you tested our brothers and sisters. And then you get to work trying to do, trying to make their lives a little bit better. Because I think we will be questioned on this on the Day of Judgment. I think you answered that really well. And I really hope that our listeners are able to think on this. Because as you said, the defeatist mentality doesn't help us. And we need to be more creative. We need to be more aware of our role as individuals, as believers. Not just within our local communities and our families. But what it means to truly be a part of the Ummah. Like this podcast is titled Human Rights in the Ummah. What does it mean for us to be a part of the Ummah in the first place? And so having answered all those very big questions, I want to ask just one more related primarily to your work. So what kind of work do you personally engage in? What kind of projects are you a part of in your human rights work? So I work for an organization called Justice for All. Justice for All was started about 30 years ago during the Bosnia genocide. Um, when Muslims in Chicago got together and formed a task force and tried to convince the American government to intervene in the Bosnia genocide. And from that, Justice for All was created. So from my day-to-day daily work, I do a lot of congressional advocacy. So I'm on Capitol Hill a lot. If someone had asked me six, seven years ago, maybe 10 years ago, I would have probably laughed at their face <laughs> that that doing sitting across the table from people that are frankly are murderers of our 
brothers and sisters overseas. Like, why would I want to sit across the table from them? Yeah. But one of the things that I've, you know, maybe you grow older and a little bit, I don't know if you grow wiser, but you learn the ways of the world that if you're not on the table, if you're not, you know, if you're not at the table, you're either on the table or you're, you know, you're being eaten. Um, at least us being there, you know, I feel like I fulfill, you know, for example, I use this a lot. When Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala asked Maryam alayhi salam to shake that palm tree, that was a big palm tree. She was a little woman. Her shaking that palm tree was not going to do anything. No dates were going to drop. Nothing was going to happen by her shaking that palm tree. But she was commanded to do that. And it was a spiritual act for her to do that. This is my shaking the palm tree. I am not able, maybe, I don't know. I make dua every day that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala uses whatever word, some letter, something that I am sending. At least I hope to God that when I'm standing in front of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, I can say, I, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, I spoke. I, you told Musa alayhi salam to go speak to the Fir'aun. I went to speak to the Fir'aun. And so that's another, so I do congressional advocacy, which means I'm often sending memos and policy memos to the State Department about things that are happening to Muslims around the world, especially where there are minorities. Uh, we focus on my, places where Muslims are minorities. On a day-to-day basis, uh, when we, we do lobbying um, in the sense of uh, going and we take uh, Rohingya and Uyghur um, um, brothers and sisters to ca- uh, meet their congressional representatives and share their stories. And alhamdulillah, because of this work, the United States and Canada, where we bo- have ex- um, recognized both the Rohingya and the Uyghur genocide, it took several years of advocacy. It wasn't like it just happened on a daily basis. Like right now we're doing ICC submissions, the International Criminal Court. We're gathering all the stuff that you guys are seeing on Instagram and posted uh, here and there. We're gathering that and making submissions to the International Court, Criminal Court. We did this during the Rohingya genocide as well to get testimony of the people that were coming in to the camps and recording their testimonies. And now Several years later, those testimonies are being used in the International Court of Justice when Gambia has put a case against them. So a lot of this work is very slow. It's not going to be, you're not going to see, oh, I started today and tomorrow Palestine will be free and the day after the Rohingya will go back to Burma and to their homes. They're small little victories. They're small little, we get, we have laws passed Two years ago, we got the Uyghur Human Rights Act, Uyghur Forced Labor Prevention Act passed. The year before, we had the Uyghur Human Rights Act passed in Congress. We And people will say, oh, that's just because the U.S. and has a Cold War going on with China. And that's why the bill was passed. And actually, we were up against Apple, Nike, all these major corporations that had hired millions of dollars worth of lobbyists, professional lobbyists, and we were up against them. So no, it was not easy at all. And even right now, there's so much pressure from because a lot of Democrats want the climate change bills to be passed, and they want China on board for that. So they are overlooking the oil or genocide. So we're always up against 
forces that are much more organized and much more wealthier than us. So that's stuff that I do for the Indian Muslim cause. That's a cause very close to my heart. I'm from South Asia and have many relatives still in India. So we work on a daily basis. I co-chair the India Working Group at the International Religious Freedom Roundtable. And so engagement, whether it's with Democrats or Republicans or with other building coalitions around this, educating people about Hindutva, what is Hindutva, what are they doing, and how it's such a big threat to not only Indian Muslims, but Muslims around the world. And it's a threat to the United States as well. If people don't understand that, we could possibly have a much deeper conversation about this on, a, on another day. But yeah, uh, it's not, you know, I do a lot of research. Uh, it's not a fun job, but I work with really good people. And, you know, when I get emails telling folks making dua for our work, I really, you know, that just makes it worth it. Alhamdulillah. That is quite an impressive resume, Mosh and Gratni Tawfiq, and all that you're doing. To summarize everything that we've covered, or at least most of it, what are some final words that you'd like to leave our listeners with? We'll just say that I just look at the trajectory of my own work, and honestly, 12, 14 years ago, 13, a decade ago, I was a homeschooling mom, and there is no reason that all of you can't be doing the work I'm doing. There's no, we put up these barriers to our, on, on this work. And I can't tell you how important it, because Muslims are so dehumanized. Palestinians are so dehumanized. Muslims, especially from African countries, black Muslims are so dehumanized. If we cannot understand why working for human rights is so important to us, then think of how dehumanized we have made our own selves. We are not worth it to our own selves. We don't take ourselves seriously. Yeah. Take yourself seriously and take the Ummah seriously. I think that is a powerful note for us to end on. And I hope our listeners really take the time to think about what was said and consider as believers who will be answerable to Allah on the Day of Judgment for what we did with our time. Take advantage of five things before five our free time, our health, our youth, so much more. What are we doing with it? And how are we truly playing a role in the ummah? What does it mean for us to be a part of this ummah? And we just need to open up our imaginations and our worldviews because it's not just about your family or your local community or your ethnic community. It is truly about the global ummah of Rasulullah and standing up for justice and living the words of the Quran in every way, both in our private lives and our political lives, our public lives in every way. Jazakallah khair Hannah for taking the time to speak with us today. May Allah grant you barakah and success in all the work that you continue to do, justice for all, human rights, advocacy work, and of course, what you do for Muslim matters as well. To our listeners, Jazakallah khair. Stay tuned for the next episode. And as always, don't forget to share your thoughts on this episode as well. Jazakallah khair Hannah. Oh, thank you so much. And Assalamu alaikum, everyone. Keep reading Muslim Matters. We all love our audience. We love our readership. And make dua for us, for all the work that is being done behind the scenes. Inshallah. Hey, everyone. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast and follow us online on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram on our handle, Muslim Matters. And check out our site daily at muslimmatters.org. 
Thanks for listening, and we'll see you in the next one, inshallah. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.